Hello, friends. Welcome to Off the Beaten Podcast. I'm your host with the most lifelong Chicagoan and coffee fiend, Dion McGill. Off the Beaten Podcast is the pod that gives voice to the city of Chicago and the amazing people who make this city unique. All right, folks, it's story time. So it dawned on me today that I had never done a Pride Month episode, and I wanted to fix that. First and foremost, let me say that Off The Beaten Podcast is a podcast that supports the LGBTQ plus community. As an individual, I can say the same. I was raised in a family that was taught to accept people as they are. That's one of the reasons that I am, even so many years into life, miffed by the fact that one person can dislike another person for things like sexual gender or sexual preference or skin color, etc. Uh, if you're going to dislike somebody, dislike them because they're an asshole, right? And, and after that, just let it go. Don't understand. And it, it often reminds me of, of when I was a kid. So my father was raised in Mississippi. He was born in 1940. And to put that in perspective, Emmett Till was born in 1941 and was killed in 1955, right? So, but I remember as a kid, like I remember as a kid knowing my father's background, being just shocked that he had friends who were white. And I was just kind of always be like, how? How does he, you know? And I, I know my father occasionally would tell, he told me a story once, like, because uh, he grew up on a farm, and I remember him telling me once that him and you know a group of I don't know if it was siblings or friends, but they had like bagged up potatoes, and they took them into town, and he was like, and we sold these potatoes for like a quarter a bag, and we're selling them to these white people, and the white people were like, thanks, and they were all happy and giving us a quarter, and we would just go and laugh our asses off because they were giving us money for something that we had literally just gotten for free. And I know one time he told me that story, and he was pretty tickled, um, but you know he just grew up to accept people as they were. The fact that they were white was fairly inconsequential to him unless you were an asshole. And then it was like, well, there we go. So that was just kind of the climate and perspective I was raised under and how I've always just moved forth in life to offer you some perspective on on my, you know, background and outlooks. But while thinking about Pride Month and what it represents, um, I started thinking back through kind of just do my own personal history and my relationships or relationship with the LGBTQ plus. That's how we'll just use that umbrella term moving forward, a community. I don't know or understand all of the politics of the LGBTQ plus community, uh, but I, I want to learn. I need to learn. I need to learn more. Uh, so I suppose we could learn together, right? And so one of the things I definitely want to do, I really want to have more LGBTQ plus voices as part of this podcast. So if you know someone who would be good for me to sit and chat with, please slide in my DMs and make that introduction or the suggestion for someone that I should reach out to. Also, just because this was on the top of my mind when I started kind of conceiving this, if anyone knows Genevieve of Genevieve's Bakery, I would love to have her on the pod. Uh, she's been on my like dream list for a long time. Please let her know that this little podcaster on the South Side is talking about her and would like to talk with her not only about being a part of the LGBTQ plus community, but also about her amazing business and about Ube. <laughs> Because Ube seems to be everything right now. And I've heard through the grapevine that she is one of the masters of using it culinarily. Is that a real word? Culinarily? We're going to make it a word. Okay. Yeah, I digress. I, I know that right now, at this point in history, uh, 
particularly, that's a word that's always tough for me to say, which I think is why I use it so much. Um, trans women, particularly black and brown trans women, have been facing increasing rates of fatal violence. In 2021, the human rights campaign tracked a record number of violent fatal incidents against transgender and gender nonconforming people with 50 fatalities tracked at that time. Um, this was reflected here in Chicago when two black trans women were both found dead one day apart in March of this year. Uh, Tatiana LaBelle, also known as TT, as it was reported in the news, was found in a trash can beaten to death in the Chatham neighborhood on March 18th, and her death was ruled a homicide. One day later, transgender activist Elise uh, Mallory was found dead along the lakefront in Evanston a week uh, after she was reported missing. I know through the work that I do that substance use is also a significant problem in the LGBTQ community, from alcohol abuse and binge drinking to the use of harder drugs like methamphetamines, heroin, and opioids. Many people in the sexual minority struggle with addiction. Uh, Statistics show that LGBTQ adults are more than twice as likely as their heterosexual counterparts to use illicit drugs and almost twice as likely to suffer uh, from a substance abuse disorder. And I feel like these are issues that we need to discuss, right, and need to dive into and all need to know and learn more about, right? But that's the bad stuff. I also know that some of the coolest people I know identify as lesbian or gay or bisexual or trans or queer. Um, as a cisgendered heterosexual male, I'm still trying to get my thumb on queer and and I'm, I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> but I know that it's crazy that in 2022, we're all still arguing for equal protection for all, for all under the law. I also know that I will continue to be an ally in whatever way I can to my LGBTQ plus friends and even the folks I don't know. I'm here to say, go on with your bad self, right? And I got you. And as I mentioned, I was thinking about my relationship with the community. Um, and I remember who I think was my first friend to identify to me as something other than heterosexual. And that was my friend, Megan. Uh, hello, Megan, if you should ever hear this. We took music theory together and she seemed so comfortable and free, not only with herself, but with her space in the world around her. And I thought that she was glorious. I remember she would tease me and she would pinch me and I would say, stop it. And she'd say, you like it. And she was right. <laughs> but I wasn't ready to admit that yet. But uh, she was good people and she opened my eyes to things that I'd never been exposed to uh, and in her own way offered me an education. I mean, I'd had relatives who were either gay or lesbian, but I don't think anyone before that had ever said to me, I'm not heterosexual. Although I'm not sure she said it like that, but if you know Megan, you know she might have. <laughs> She's still one of the most colorful, badass, and unapologetic people that I know. So happy pride to you, Megan. And then I thought about when I went to college. I remember my first college crush, Sarah. I can't remember her last name, which is probably for the best, or I would surely Facebook stalk her. <laughs> and don't laugh. We all have those one or two people from our past that we check up on twice a year via social media. Or is it just me? But I remember, um, what do I remember about Sarah? I remember that she was Jewish, uh, and I thought she was divine. Um, 
and and actually, like looking back on it, I remember she looked a lot like Lisa Loeb, but um, <laughs> she had dark black hair, deep brown eyes, and she was enthralling, and she had the best personality. Um, I don't know how we met, although I'm sure it was randomly, as I've met most people in college, but I followed her around like a puppy dog, as smitten boys often do. And actually, the first story that comes to mind involving Sarah is after I figured out that a relationship with her was not going to happen. I, I then worked up the courage to ask a young lady from one of my classes out that I'd been you know, chatting with for, for some time. Her name was Candy, with an I, and she was a whip, that woman. She <laughs> She was a she was a character, uh, but she was delightful. And after spending a few months of walking out with her and finding any excuse to extend my walk with her and her direction, which was completely opposite of mine to strike up a conversation, I finally worked up the courage to ask her out. And this was still back in the day when it was appropriate to walk up to someone and say, hi, my name is Dion, and I'd really like to take you out to dinner. I feel like that would get you mace today. But back then that actually worked. <laughs> But we did dinner, and I remember our first date very specifically because I actually cooked. I made spaghetti, and I baked brownies. This, this was back when I did such things to impress women. <laughs> and I actually used the kitchen in the dorm. I don't know if anyone even knew the dorm had a kitchen, but I remember we were walking in, and from one of the other entrances, Sarah was coming in with a friend, and I saw her, and I waved, and she beelined over to us, and she kissed me. And I was like, oh, and I mean, <laughs> and I mean, I wanted the, the kiss to last for like 10 minutes, but as soon as it started, it ended. And there I am looking at this girl that I think is divine and looking over at my date who is delightful and I'm having to introduce them. I said, Hey, so this is Candy and Candy, this is Sarah. And they offered greetings and Sarah said bye and disappeared as suddenly as she came. Just a wisp of dark hair plunging around the corner. And to her credit, as I stuttered through what I hoped sounded like a reasonable explanation. That's my friend Sarah. She's never shown any interest in me romantically. I might have hinted at dating. She <laughs> <laughs> this is how I imagine I sound. <laughs> how do you explain the situation? <laughs> We've never kissed before and certainly never did anything else. And Candy just laughed it off. She laughed. I'll never get her laughing her ass off in the lobby and me just being like, and I swear it won't happen again. I don't know what to say. She thought it was hilarious. <laughs> Kudos to her because I would have kicked me in the balls and walked home. But uh, before that, Sarah and I would hang out all the time. I'd often find myself hanging with her and her friends. And then in the evening when I didn't have rehearsal, I was a music education major. Uh, we'd go for walks. She was like me. She loved a good evening walk. And during one of those walks, as we were getting more comfortable and talking about more personal issues, she's talking about her ex. And she says, yeah, she, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I stopped her and I said, she? And she was like, yeah, I'm bisexual. And I was like... And she went on to say that pretty much everyone I'd been hanging out with, with her, were members of the BGLFA, which was WIU's uh, Bisexuals, Gays, Lesbians, and Friends Association. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool, you know? And of course, nothing changed. But uh, back then, I was so vanilla in my knowledge and in my life experience. But yes, I... I 
went on to join the PGLFA because they were cool motherfuckers and even did panel discussions with other members as an ally, which back then was kind of like still like a thing. This was like 1997, um, 1998. Um, this was pre the Matthew Shepard uh, murder. And I feel like we were still in this kind of climate where like, you know, if you were out, that was a that was a th- especially on the college campus that was a big thing and you know even to be an ally was kind of like oh <laughs> kind of like a big thing too which now looking back on it seems so odd but it was real and yeah and uh, we would do these panel discussions where we talked about the organization and we'd dispel myths about the lgbtq community which i think then was like we always refer to as the BGLF community. Um, and at the end of the panel, we would reveal where on the spectrum we fit, and which was always interesting. <laughs> and, also, and, and so moving further into the future, I went on to join an organization called the Cavaliers Drum and Bugle Corps. They're uh, it's like marching band on steroids, however you want to refer to it. They're an all-male organization. And as an outsider, I always thought that the Cavaliers Drum and Bugle Corps was an organization with ties to the LGBTQ community. I mean, their core song was Rainbow. <laughs> they all wore rainbows on their jackets, and there was a big-ass rainbow on the bus. That made sense to me. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. You know, and I was a fan. And I later joined the Cavaliers. And then as a member of the Corps, I came to learn that that link between those two communities wasn't overt or intended, depending on who you asked. But when I was a member, a large percentage of the color guard would have been labeled uh, or would have self-identified as gay or or some variation of non-heterosexual Um but yeah, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I, I was like, oh, so this isn't, the, the rainbow isn't a thing, <laughs> but but here we are. And I remember hanging out with the guard and, and furthering my education um, about the LGBT community and, and trying my best to be a supporter. And, and to me, supporting was getting to know people, right? And learning in myself to, to, face my biases um, and to face, you know, just the, the issues that I have within my, I think like a lot of people, this it's not you, it's the issues they have within themselves that make them, you know, ugly or make them not friendly or whatever. Um, and I, you know, and getting comfortable enough that I could ask the dumb questions and have an open heart to be corrected and sometimes chastised and seeking to gain greater knowledge and understanding of sorts. And a lot of that happened um, in just in the, the two years that I was in the Cavaliers. Um, and I still to this day think that the Cavaliers should apply to march in a pride parade. I think that should be a thing. If you know the Cavaliers, they need to get rid of the green jackets. They need rainbow jackets. <laughs> And they need to do their thing. I mean, your core song, our core song is Rainbow. That would be awesome. All we have to do is play the core song. It would be great. (laughs) But I've also marched with the Lakeside Pride Marching Band, and they are very tightly connected to the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community. It's a lot of letters. 
I actually first thought I wanted to join that organization when it was uh, right after gay marriage was legalized. I, I can't, I, I, I'm bad with years and numbers, but I remember that evening I was on a bike ride and I remember when that happened, it was just like celebration. And I was riding my bike through Boys Town, which is now North Halstead, but then was Boys Town or maybe still Boys Town. I don't know. Educate me, people. And there was a group of musicians playing music on the corner in front of 7-Eleven. You know what 7-Eleven I'm talking about. And I said, who are you all with? And they, one of them yelled back, Lakeside Pride. <laughs> and coincidentally, that was the organization that came to mind when I thought, I want to get back into music and meet more, you know, meet more musicians and maybe even meet a lady. <laughs> well, I went to the wrong organization for that, which was which is fine. Um, I met a lot of lovely ladies, and some of their girlfriends are quite cute too. But yeah, <laughs> but I still dig Lakeside Pride. It was also, you know, um, I think it's like anything else, right? Just finding yourself in situations where you may be the outsider, which which I'm not is not unusual in my life, and I'm not at this juncture overly uncomfortable with, but like. You know, being in a community that is that I don't identify as my own. And so I definitely received an education through Lakeside Pride. And um, I wish I had more time on my hands because I would love to march with them this year. I would love to march in this year's Pride Parade, but I just don't have it. And actually, with the way the weather's been, I'm probably glad I don't have it <laughs> because it's been hot as fuck. Okay. And I thought back to my experience marching in the Pride Parade outside of Lakeside Pride. And I, in this funny story, back in the day, I was in the parade with an anti-war organization called The World Can't Wait. Those were the Bush years. And I was in the National Guard. I did almost, I did most of my military career under Bush. Um, and I did the entirety of my military career under the Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, I think I think that I think I, it still extended years, a couple years before when I got out. But for most, if not all, and there I am in the Pride Parade, <laughs> handing out anti-war literature. When I bump into this guy from my National Guard unit, he goes, "What are you doing here?" And I push the papers down so he wouldn't notice them, and I get that touche, sir, look on my face, and I go, "What are you doing here?" And we kind of was like a, a minute of pause for both of us, and then I kind of like leaned back and said, don't ask, don't tell. And we kind of laughed, you know, and he sauntered off. And then later we actually like met, met up, not later that day, but probably a few weeks later. And he mentioned to me, he goes, hey, I was at the parade because my sister identifies as lesbian and I always go to support her. And I was like, well, I was there handing out anti-war literature. <laughs> so here we are. Um, and we both laughed and, you know, it was it was a good, a good time, a good memory. Um, and so since then, um, since then, I also marched in the parade with the ICHV, and we marched with Kelly Cassidy, uh, who is delightful and a great public servant. Uh, she's also notably an openly LGBT member of the Illinois General Assembly and a member of the Chicago Gay and Lesbian Hall of Fame. If you're not familiar with her, I encourage you to look her up. I'm sure she'll be in the parade this year. Give her an extra loud shout. She is amazing. So speaking of the Pride Parade, I was intrigued 
And I think this maybe this is why so many of my memories that, that were conjured were focused around the Pride Parade. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that year I marched the parade and was handing out literature and almost got busted. And <laughs> but speaking of the parade, I was intrigued at the story about the Aurora Pride Parade recently nearly being canceled because they requested police not to march in the parade in uniform and or using official police vehicles. The permit of the parade was then revoked due to not being able to find enough police volunteers to staff. It was a whole mess. Eventually, they found enough police to have the parade. They had the parade. It was a grand success as reported in the news. But I was very intrigued by this article, and I later heard someone on the Post News podcast saying that they are sure that this will be an issue for the city of Chicago in upcoming years. And so I was kind of thinking, I was like, okay, why is this suddenly an issue? And while thinking over all of that, I came across a quote that put the issue in perfect perspective for me. It said, pride was, is, and will forever be a protest and riot from police brutality. So before I go any further, anytime I read that quote, I feel like I just have to stop and just sit for a minute with that thought as a black male. Pride was, is, and will forever be a protest and riot from police from police brutality. And my first thought is, okay, earmuffs alert. How the fuck could I not support that event? And the people that it represents. If I can't relate to a community in any other way, if I hear they're being brutalized by the police, my only real response is, damn, this is me too. Okay, earmuffs off. Um, but yeah. So as you might already know, Pride Month is celebrated in June to honor the Stonewall Riots, also called the Stonewall Uprising, began in the Early hours of June 28, 1969, when New York City police raided the Stonewall Inn, a gay club located in the Greenwich Village in New York City. The raid sparked a riot among bar patrons and neighborhood residents as police roughly hauled employees and patrons out of the bar, leading to six days of protests and violent clashes with law enforcement outside the bar on Christopher Street, in neighboring streets and in Christopher Park. The Stonewall Riots served as a catalyst for the gay rights movement in the United States and around the world. So the 1960s and preceding decades were not welcoming times for lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender Americans, which I feel like is an understatement. But for instance, solicitation of same sex relations was illegal in New York City. For such reasons, LGBTQ individuals flocked to gay bars and clubs and places of refuge where they could express themselves openly and socialize without worry. However, the New York State Liquor Authority penalized and shut down establishments that served alcohol to known or suspected LGBTQ individuals, arguing that the mere gathering of homosexuals was disorderly. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to anybody? (laughs) I feel like, I always feel like when I record my podcast, I need to have people here so I can be like, damn it, does that sound like something we've heard before? (laughs) But thanks to activist efforts, these regulations were overturned. And in 1966, LGBTQ patrons... could then be served alcohol. But engaging in gay behavior in public, holding hands, kissing, 
or dancing with someone of the same sex was still illegal. So police harassment of gay bars continued and many bars still operated without liquor licenses, in part because they were owned by the mafia. So I'm going to include an article down in the resources about how the mob helped establish New York City, uh, New York City's gay bar scene. Um, I had never read about this before, had never heard about this, but there's a you know, big surprise. Things I don't know. Um, but apparently the Stonewall Inn was controlled by the Genovese crime family, um, which I found, you know, very interesting. And it is, I thought it was a very uh, interesting article. The article is on history.com. So I'm hoping <laughs> I'm hoping that is legit historical information. I did not do the research myself, um, but, it, it, you know, hey, we're going to trust history.com to do what history.com does. So I'll save that. I'll share that down in the episode notes. But raids were still a fact of life, um, but usually corrupt cops would tip off the mafia-run bars before they occurred, allowing the owners to stash the alcohol, which was being sold without the license, and hide other illegal activities. In fact, the NYPD has stormed Stonewall Inn just a few days before the riot-inducing raid. But when police raided Stonewall Inn on the morning of June 28th, it came as a surprise. The bar wasn't tipped off at all. Armed with a warrant, police officers entered the club, uh, roughed up patrons, and finding bootlegged alcohol, arrested 13 people, including employees and people violating the state's gender-appropriate clothing statute. Uh, believe it or not, female officers would take suspected cross-dressing patrons into the bathroom to check their sex. Fed up with constant police harassment and social discrimination, Angry patrons and neighborhood residents hung around outside the bar rather than disperse, becoming increasingly agitated as the events unfolded and people were aggressively manhandled. At one point, an officer hit a lesbian over the head as he forced her into the police van. She shouted to onlookers to act, inciting the crowd to begin to throw pennies, bottles, cobblestones, and other objects at the police. Within minutes, a full-blown riot involving hundreds of people began. The police, a few prisoners, and a Village Voice writer barricaded themselves in the bar, which the mob attempted to set on fire after breaching the barricade repeatedly. The fire department and a riot squad were eventually able to douse the flames, rescue those inside Stonewall, and disperse the crowd. But the protests, sometimes involving thousands of people, continued in the area for five more days, flaring up at one point after the Village Voice published its account of the riots. So please, allow me to share that account with you, entitled Full Moon Over Stonewall. Um, voice columnist Howard Smith's account of the night he spent on the wrong side of the blue line barricaded inside the Stonewall Inn with police. I'm going to read the article as is. Uh, there are words in there that are not socially acceptable today. I'm just going to read it as it lays. And, you know, okay. So here we go. During the gay power riots at the Stonewall last Friday night, I found myself on what seemed to me the wrong side of the blue line. Very scary. Very enlightening. I struck up a spontaneous relationship with Deputy Inspector Pine, who had marshaled the raid and was following him closely, listening to all the little dialogues and plans and police inflections. Things were already pretty tense. The gay customers, freshly injected from their hangout, prancing high and jubilant in the street, had been joined by quantities of Friday night tourists hawking around for village-type excitement. 
The cops had considerable trouble arresting the few people they wanted to take in for further questioning. A strange mood was in the crowd. I noticed the full moon. Loud defiances mixed with skittish hilarity made for a far more dangerous stage of protest. They were feeling their impunity. This kind of crowd freaks easily. The turning point came when the police had difficulty keeping a dyke in a patrol car. Three times she slid out and tried to walk away. The last time a cop bodily heaved her in. The crowd shrieked, police brutality, pigs. A few coins sailed through the air. I covered my face. Pine ordered the three cars and paddy wagon to leave with the prisoners before the crowd became a more of a mob. Hurry back, he added, realizing he and his force of eight detectives, two of them women, would be easily overwhelmed if the temper, if the temper broke. Just drop them at the sixth precinct and hurry back. The siren caravan pushed through the gauntlet, pummeled and buffled until it managed to escape. Pigs, gagged cops, pennies and dimes flew. I stood against the door. The detectives held at most a 10-foot clearing, escalate to nickels and quarters, a bottle, another bottle. Pine says, let's get inside, lock ourselves in, it's safer. You want to come in, he asked me? You're probably safer. With a paternal tone, two flashes, if they go in and I stay out, will the mob know that the blue plastic thing hanging from my shirt is a press card? Or by now, will they assume I'm a cop too? On the other hand, it might be interesting to be locked in with a few cops, just rapping and reviewing how they work. In goes me. We bolt the heavy door. The front of the stone wall is mostly brick, except for the windows, which are boarded within by plywood. Inside, we hear the shattering of windows, followed by what we imagine to be bricks pounding on the door, voices yelling. The floor shudders at each blow. Are you guys scared? I say. No, but they look uh, at least uneasy. The door crashes open, beer cans and bottles hurl in. Pine and his troop rush to shut it. At that point, the only uniformed cop among them gets hit with something under his eye. He hollers, and his hand comes away scarlet. It looks a lot more serious than it really is. They are all suddenly furious. They run out in front of, to see if they can scare the mob from the door. A hail of coins. A beer can glances off a of Deputy Inspector Smith's head. Pine, a man of about 40 and smallest builds, gathers himself, leaps out into the melee and grabs someone around the waist, pulling him downward and back into the doorway. They fall. Pine regains hold and drags the elected protester inside by the hair. The door slams again. Angry cops converge on the guy, releasing their anger on his sample from the mob. Pine is saying, I saw him throwing something, and the guy unfortunately is giving some sass. Snidely admits to throwing only a few coins. The cop who was cut is incensed, yells something like, so you're the one who hit me. And while the other cops help, he slaps the prisoner four or six times, very hard, and finishes with a punch to the mouth. They handcuff the guy as he almost passes out. All right, Pine announces, we buck him for assault. The door is smashed open again. More objects are thrown. The detectives locate a fire hose, the idea being to ward off the maddening crowd until reinforcements arrive. They can't see where to aim it, wedging the hose in a crack in the door. It comes out a weak stream. We all start to slip on water and Pine says to stop. By now the mind's eye has forgotten the character of the mob. The sound filtering in doesn't suggest dancing faggots anymore. It sounds like a powerful rage bent on vendetta. That way, why Pines singling out the guy I knew later to be Dan Van Ronk was important. The little force of detectives was beginning to feel fear, and Pines' action clinched their morale again. A door over to the side almost gives. One cop shouts, get away from that or I'll shoot. It stops shaking. The front door is completely open. One of the big plywood windows gives, and it seems inevitable that the mob will pour in. 
A kind of tribal adrenaline rush bolsters all of us. They all take out and check pistols. I see both police women busy doing the same and the danger becomes even more real. I find a big wrench behind the bar jamming into my belt like a scimitar. Hindsight, my fear on the verge of being trampled by a mob feels the same dimension as my fear on the verge of being clubbed by the TPF. Pine places a few men on each side of the corridor leading away from the entrance. The aim unwavering at the door. One detective arms himself in addition with a sawed-off baseball bat he has found. I hear, we'll shoot the first motherfucker that comes through the door. Pine glances over toward me. Are you all right, Howard? I can't believe what I'm saying. I'd feel a lot better with the gun. I can only see the arm at the window. It squirts a liquid into the room, and a flaring match follows. Pine is not more than ten feet away. He aims his gun at the figures. He doesn't fire. The sound of sirens coincides with the whoosh of flames where the lighter fluid was thrown. Later, Pine tells me he didn't shoot because he had heard the sirens in time and felt no need to kill someone if help was arriving. That was close. While the squads of uniforms disperse the mob out front and side, we are checking to see if each of us are alright. For a few moments, we get the post-tension giggles, but as they subside, I start scribbling notes to catch up, and the people around me change back to cops. They begin examining the place. It had lasted 45 minutes. Just before and after the siege, I picked up some more detached information. According to the police, they are not picking on homosexuals. On these raids, they almost never arrest customers, only people working there. As of June 1st, the State Liquor Authority said that all unlicensed places were eligible to apply for licenses. The police are scrutinizing all unlicensed places, and most of the bars that are in that category happen to cater to homosexuals. The Stonewall is an unlicensed private club. The raid was made with a warrant after undercover agents inside observed the legal sale of alcohol. To make certain the raid plans did not leak, it was made without notifying the 6th Precinct until after the detectives, all from the 1st Division, were inside the premises. Once the bus had actually started, one of Pine's men called the 6th for assistance on a payphone. It was explained to me that generally men dress as men, even if wearing sense of makeup, are always released. Men dress as women are sometimes arrested, and men fully dress as women, but who, upon inspection by a policewoman proved to have undergone the sex change operations, are always let go. At the stone wall, out of the five queens checked, three were men and two were changes, even though all said they were girls. Pine released them all anyway. As for the rough-talking owners and her managers of the stone wall, their riff ran something like this. We are just honest businessmen who are being harassed by the police because we cater to homosexuals and because our names are Italian, so they think we're part of something bigger. We hadn't done anything wrong and have never been convicted in no court. We have rights and the court should decide that should decide and not let the police do things like what happened here. When we got back in the place, all the mirrors, jukeboxes, phones, toilets, and cigarette machines were smashed. Even the sinks were stuffed and running over, and we say the police did it. The courts will say that we are innocent. Who isn't, I thought, as I dropped my scimitar and departed. <sighs> so there you go. Hopefully you learned a little something and this whole fireside chat won't be for nothing. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and end this the same way I started uh, by talking about black trans women. And if you're talking Stonewall, just through the education I've received over the past few years, I feel like you're talking about Mar Marsha P. Johnson, right? So who was Marsha P. Johnson? 
Marsha P. Johnson was an African-American transgender woman who was an LGBTQ rights activist and an outspoken advocate for trans people of color. Johnson spearheaded the Stonewall Uprising in 1969, and along with Sylvia Rivera, she was she later established the Street Transvestite, now Transgender Action Revolutionaries, or STAR, a group committed to helping homeless transgender youth in New York City. She was tragically found dead on July 6, 1992, at the age of 46. Her life has been celebrated in numerous books, documentaries, and films. To go a little more in depth, Marsha P. Johnson was born Malcolm Michaels Jr. on August 24, 1945, in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Johnson experienced a difficult childhood due to her Christian upbringing. She engaged in cross-dressing behavior at an early age, but was quickly reprimanded. Johnson moved to Greenwich Village, New York City, after graduating from high school. In New York, Marsha struggled to make ends meet. She was homeless and prostituted herself to make those ends meet. However, she found joy as a drag queen amidst the nightlife of Christopher Street. Johnson designed all of her own costumes, mostly from thrift shops. She quickly became a prominent fixture in the LGBTQ community, serving as a drag mother by helping homeless and struggling LGBTQ youth and touring the world as a successful drag queen with the hot peaches. An eccentric woman known for her outlandish hats and glamorous jewelry, she was fearless and bold. Despite her difficulties with mental illness and numerous police encounters, whenever she was asked what the P in her name stood for and when people pried about her gender or sexuality, she quipped back with pay it no mind. Her forthright nature and enduring strength led her to speak out against injustices. Many witnesses have identified Marsha as one of the main instigators of the uprising and thus some have recognized her as the vanguard of the gay liberation movement in the United States. As an African-American trans woman, Johnson has consistently been overlooked both as a participant in the Stonewall Uprising and, more generally, LGBTQ activism. As the broader gay and lesbian movement shifted towards leadership from white cisgender men and women, trans people of color were swept to the outskirts of the movement. Despite this, um, as I mentioned before, following the events at Stonewall, Johnson and her friend Sylvia Rivera co-founded the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, and they became fixtures in the community, especially in their commitment to helping homeless transgender youth. Star provided services, including shelter. Their first, their first shelter was a trailer truck uh, to homeless LGBTQ people in New York City, Chicago, California, and England for a few years in the early 1970s, but eventually disbanded. Sadly, as I also mentioned, at the age of 46, on July 6, 1992, Johnson's body was found in the Hudson River off the West Village Piers. The police ruled she had committed suicide despite claims from her friends and other members of the local community that she was not suicidal. 25 years later, Victoria Cruz, a crime victim advocate of the New York City Anti-Police Project, or the AVP, reopened the case. Johnson's stories featured in uh, Pay It No Mind, Marsha P. Johnson, produced in 2012, and The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, uh, produced in 2017, and Happy Birthday, Marsha, also produced in 2017. In 2015, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute was established. Its mission is to defend and protect the human rights of transgender and gender nonconforming communities. Marsha is honored as a Stonewall instigator, a drag queen, an Andy Warhol model, an actress, and a revolutionary trans activist. Also, sadly, as I was producing this episode, the world got word that Chicago's own drag mother, Gloria Allen, on 
known as Mama Gloria by the younger LGBTQ people she mentored recently died at the age of 76. Um, Mama Gloria was a Chicago black transgender icon and blazed a trail for trans people like few others before her. Emerging from Chicago's Southside drag ball culture in the 1960s, Gloria overcame traumatic violence to become a proud leader in her community. Most famously, she pioneered a charm school for young transgender uh, people that served as inspiration for the hit play Charm. Mama Gloria was also the subject of an award-winning documentary. CityCast Chicago recently posted an interview with Mama Gloria, and I encourage you to check that out, and I will post a link for that in the episode notes. And I can't think of a more perfect place to end uh, than paying homage to Black Girl Magic. All right, so thank you for listening. Also, as always, for all the mentions and shout outs um, in this episode, episode, go to the uh, episode notes. There'll be links or go to my website at www.offthebeatingpodcast.com. This podcast is about spreading uh, the good news, uh, I guess today, spreading some good history um, and all about the amazing things Chicago has to offer always. I appreciate you for listening and please take a moment to give this podcast a rate and review on your podcasting app. It helps the podcast and all the algorithms and genuinely helps others find us. Also, be sure to share this with a friend. I like to grow the podcast two years at a time. Um, and with that being said, thank you for listening off the beating podcast. I am Dion. Uh, be good, do good, and I'll see you all next time. Peace. You think